0: Einstein and sock monkey episode nine. Real web fonts. Recorded May third, two thousand eleven. Today's podcast is brought to you by Audible. You can get a free audiobook download by going to audibletrial.com/einstein. Over eighty-five thousand titles to choose from for your iPod, iPhone, MP three player, or even your Kindle. <laughs> <laughs> what? There's a whole Sock Monkey culture connected to all this. I believe that Einstein was a lazy procrastinator like me. Yeah, but can you guys tell me what this has to do with um, web design? Welcome to Einstein and Sock Monkey, the podcast for web geeks and website owners. My name is Steve Martin, and I'm a user experience designer.
1: And my name is Ron Zazadinsky and I run a website design and development company.
0: Well, um, if you may have noticed that we sound a bit different this time, hopefully, we, oh, <laughs> <laughs> hopefully different is better. We have um, upgraded the sound stuff. We got some new mics and an um, actual mixing board. And yeah, so it looks really cool. official. Really it has blinky lights on it and everything. And there, are, I, I was telling Ron before. There's entirely too many knobs on the thing, so. There are for two people talking. There are a lot of knobs on that yeah. thing, so we'll have to figure that out. We, I, I did. I was doing a lot of research because we were having problems with echo and getting the sound to sync together, and all this kind of issues with these USB mics we had. And I found a thing that said, um, "If you're wanting to pick a USB mic for podcasting, the first thing you should do is not pick a USB mic." <laughs> right. So useful advice. Interesting yeah. So. Advice. I, I we were just, I, w- I would love some feedback as far from listeners as far as how you think how the sound works, and uh, feedback on the whole thing. Really, we've said that multiple times, but yeah, let us know um, how
1: the sound is for sure. Since we're switching to uh, new microphones and equipment,
0: yeah, yeah, definitely. And uh, other than that, do you have any other witty banter? We can go on. With <laughs> um, not really. <laughs> uh, you mentioned that you're crazy busy. Yeah, things
1: are very busy right now. We've had just an onslaught of inquiries for websites and some applications in the last couple weeks, which is great, but uh, I definitely have my hair on fire and the team is busy. So uh, I guess, like you said, that's a good problem to have, but it's a challenge right now to manage time. At least it's not pants on fire. (laughs) That's right. Pants are still on (laughs) and not on fire. And the good news is I'm not traveling for the next... um, Six weeks. so Oh, it's nice. I do have a wedding coming up. I'm getting married on June 17th. Oh, that's right. Yeah. Woo-hoo. So that's uh, very exciting. And a lot of the planning is done, but no travel. So hopefully that will allow me to focus on the uh, the work issues and the wedding planning, and we'll get it all done. So. i sure
0: your fiancé would appreciate the focus on the wedding planning. Uh, definitely. <laughs>
1: definitely. But that's going well. So everybody's happy right now, and I uh, hope it will stay that
0: way. Yeah, well, I just found out that I'm going to be traveling to L.A., in may for a, a client visit thing and i've had this crazy idea that i'm gonna f- maybe have the family come out to and we'll go to disneyland oh that so would be fun the kids are gonna like that so um i know my kids don't listen to this podcast so it's not a done deal <laughs> <But> <laughs> uh, if they did, be so don't get your right hopes out. up <laughs> it's right between the kids birthdays so we can just say oh, it's birthday but anyway that so would work and yeah. it's been since i was i was 10 years old i think when i went to
1: I was in the womb when I went to Disneyland. <laughs> <laughs> I've been to Disney World as a uh, uh, functioning human being. <laughs> as a kid, oh, nice. yeah, we lived in the East Coast, and my dad worked for Eastern Airlines, so, and they were the official airline of Walt Disney World. Really? So. Is that still around? No, they uh, they went under, got absorbed into Continental and People's Express, oh. both of which are now just about gone as well with the merger with United. So, right. yeah, but that was years ago. Um fun place though, as I recall. Oh yeah. Yeah. And uh they have some great user experience designed the whole park, right? The whole point is user experience design. Yeah. So uh be interested if you have any specific That's observations. On I, I hear
0: how I how they run it. I've heard um Disney invoked often when it comes to user experience design. Mm-hmm. Because it you know, I, I fight this kind of this battle at work a lot as far as talking to I mean, there's like hundred and fifty thousand people in our company. So, I'm constantly meeting wow. somebody new who i who doesn't know what I do or whatever. They say, "Oh, I'm a user experience designer," and they're like, "So you're the guy that does the UI right?" Uh-oh. I'm like, "No, no. <laughs> <laughs> well, yes, but you know there's that's kind of like the end of the whole process, but you know there's a lot more to user experience on the web, um whatever it is than just the final design stage. And that's one thing that Disney seems to have done very well is get that, uh, the whole experience part of the whole thing. Definitely. One of the fun examples I've heard with them is, you know, the
1: waiting in line part is, you know, managed as well, right? So for certain rides, you might have the briefing room, but that's just part of where the line goes through, right? Yeah. So they they turn the line into part of the experience of the ride. um, Yeah. Which is pretty smart,
0: you know? Totally. It'd be nice if other folks did the line as part of the ride. Yeah, definitely. Cool. Well, let's go on ahead with the news.
1: My first news item is related to all of the hullabaloo around iPhone and Apple tracking our geolocation oh, information. Yes. So I presume you've heard about this, right? Oh, yeah. Uh, oh, yeah. It's hard not to if you're uh, paying attention to web news or tech news. So... um you know, as it turns out that the iPhones and iPads uh, track your location through cell phone triangulation and record that information to a plain, you know, unencrypted file on your iPhone or an iPad. And whenever you sync that to iTunes, that's backed up. Right. So all of your location data for some, at least a year, maybe more, uh, is stored there. And uh, that personally, it doesn't bother me a whole lot. I mean... I think the reality is, you know, if you carry a smartphone, cell phones have been trackable for far longer than iPhones have been around. Oh yeah. So that doesn't really bother me so much. Uh, But what's interesting is some programmers came up with an application that's available for free called iPhone Tracker uh, online, and I've got a link. And so I downloaded it the other day and it it shows things in pretty low res and that it takes a one, it shows your data on one week snapshots. Mm-hmm. Um, and it doesn't, I think, have all of the data. It's not displaying all the data. All the displayed is data is in your phone. But anyway, this is a, a pretty cool thing, and I have it up on the screen here for Steve to see my my tracks. But um, uh, so this is a week by week snapshot of of where I've been for the last year. So this is data from July uh, of 2010 through you know last week or whenever I last synced my phone.
0: Now I noticed it has, and I was wondering about this when I I, I found this it it has different colored dots? I couldn't figure out any. I think the the
1: different colors are, I believe, related to the size. Oh, okay. And that the larger uh, the size, the more um, data points are in that location. Hmm.
0: So you actually spent more time, it looks like, on the East Coast than you did in Colorado. Yeah, that's
1: (laughs) what it looks like, but it's just more data points. So like certain areas where I checked in a lot, I think, have a lot more data points in there. Hmm. Um, but anyway, it's kind of wild that you can just down, you know just download this free app and just play it on your Mac, and it will show you. You don't even have to do anything; it just finds the file automatically. Yeah. and it just shows you where you've been in the last as long as you've had data in there. Um, so it's pretty cool.
0: Yeah, this is something that didn't really bother me either. I mean, some there's always people that are freaking out, but it's all it kind of like you said. It's been things are trackable. It's just kind of the world we live in. I think you know?
1: yeah, I think it's a matter of coming to terms. You know, as far as privacy. You have to. I think it's a matter of coming to terms in our age with that. Privacy is very difficult to maintain, and if you really want to maintain privacy, you have to opt out of a lot of things that are part of our culture now. Yeah, and not that you can't, but for me, I like the tech stuff, and so I'm I'm willing to do that.
0: Yeah. Cool. Well, my first uh, item today is uh, that it's kind of a kind of a cool deal. UX Booth is a website that has a that it it's a kind of a blog with UX stuff, but they're offering a uh, 30% off all Rosenfeld media books. Awesome. And if you are not familiar with Rosenfeld media, uh, it's a publisher. Uh, Lou Rosenfeld is the guy who started it and, uh, he, he's a regular around a lot of conferences and so forth. Uh, but they, they have tons of, uh, great books, uh, is around user centered specifically around user experience. um, Oh, wow, you can get like their whole pack. Like- yeah, you can just buy a pack of it. Um, you, you know, if you, save, if you buy every single one of their books, you end up saving like $60. Um, they have Remote Research is a book I bought, uh, How to Do Remote User, user Testing. Uh, a great Donna Spencer has a great book on card sorting mm-hmm. um, that actually is a lot more than just card sorting. It's about information architecture in general. Um, that's a great one. I've Luke read, uh, yeah, Ru-
1: Luke, Luke Robleski has a web form design, uh-huh. uh, which I've, uh, I have, and I've read,
0: that's a great book. If you're a web designer or a developer. Yeah. storytelling for the user experience. I mean, so there's several books there and the, um, the deal is going until, uh, let me see, till Tuesday, May 10th. So by the time this podcast comes out, you'll still have several days to
1: Take Big advantage event. of that
0: mm. to to do that, but the uh, discount code is UX booth three zero, UX booth thirty, and um, you can sh- go to UX booth dot com and you can you can find more details details about that. But Very I thought cool. that was a super good idea, and th- they not only have the printed book, but you can get the digital I see that version or get both together, etc. So.
1: Pretty nice. Yeah. See, they have all of their seven books, paperback plus digital, normally one ninety nine, which really isn't that bad to begin with, but with the discount, only a hundred and forty bucks for all of that.
0: Yeah. That's impressive. And I'm I'm a information like junkie. Me too. So I'm always, you know, buying some book that I probably need to not buy quite. <laughs> it's hard to read them all, is the problem. But hey, now I have a good excuse. Yes, you
1: do. Excellent discount. Thanks for pointing that sure. out. Uh, my second news item is uh, Adobe just released uh, CS 5.5 and it's of interest for several reasons. One is uh, they've actually announced with this release that they have a formal plan for a release schedule, which is major releases every 24 months and mid-cycle releases every 12 months. Oh, So it's the first time to my knowledge that they've in- announced a plan of predictability for releases of new versions of their software. Yeah, I've never paid that much close that close attention, but it always seemed a bit random. Yeah, it seemed random to me. And you figure it's just as they develop new features, they would release things on that cycle. But now they have actual plans, so that's kind of neat. And um, so uh, with a mid-release cycle plan as well. So uh, anyway, 5.5 is the very first mid-release cycle. And the one feature I don't have it yet, but the one feature I am particularly interested in is that it does have some very specific support for mobile web and mobile app development. Really, it does. And the one that really caught my eye because I, I currently I'm definitely in the camp of HTML5, you know, web apps as one of the key things we should be focusing on, and using jQuery as, as a great tool that we use for a lot of our websites. And uh, jQuery mobile has now been out for several months, which is a mobilized version, very specific of jQuery for mobile devices. And CS uh, 5.5 has specific jQuery mobile support. So they actually have code hinting for jQuery and jQuery mobile, which is pretty neat if you're uh, handwriting code, which we do. Uh, And it does have quick start capabilities for jQuery mobile apps. Uh, So it has the proper structure by default out of the box for a jQuery mobile app. Uh, and has preview ability, so you can actually view. It's not in any particular device, but it's a generic view of what that would look like on a you know generic mobile device. Yeah. Um, so anyway, that seems pretty interesting. Now, one thing that's a little bizarre is they claim you can also. This is like a separate thing. You can write apps for with a common code base Android, Rim devices, which would be all the BlackBerry things, uh, WebOS, and iOS. Now, I tried looking into that in more detail, and what it really is, as far as I can tell, is that you can use Flash Builder 4.5, which it comes with, for building ActionScript applications that will work in all of those devices. And you could use Adobe Flex. Wait,
0: iOS too?
1: Yeah, so I don't, you know, this, this was, remember there was a controversial thing when CS5 came out that Adobe had specifically built a tool, so you could write yep. apps in Flash and convert and then, them right, yeah. to native iOS apps that you could submit to the store.
0: Right, and Apple shut that down.
1: Right, but then they later retreated on that, and oh. yeah, they backtracked on that and said, "Well, okay, go ahead." So that actually was reinstated in CS5. Oh, yep, and is there? So you're using though. You're using so for people who developed in Flash and Flex, you're using tools that you know how to use and you have a common code base, and then theoretically you can output apps to all these devices. Huh. So the fine print is the Flex capability to do this is not yet in there for iOS. It is oh, okay. for a couple of the other platforms. But for Flex Builder, sorry, Flash Builder, you can do it for all of those platforms right now. So if you're a Flash developer or you're, you know that tool or you know ActionScript, um, this might be a way... You know, one of the challenging things in mobile development is can you write a common code base that you could then output apps for multiple platforms. So anyway, if you have any experience with that, I'd be curious for comments back on our website Mm -hmm. to uh, how that's actually working for you. If you're developing, I'd like to hear from anybody developing. You know, apps for mobile devices using Flash Builder or Flex through CS5 or 5.5. I'm curious
0: yeah, how that works. Because I, I have CS5 and I had no idea. I, I didn't heard that they, you could do any actual development with it. It's mm-hmm. interesting. Isn't it? And so
1: lastly, uh, they've come out with so, some new pricing options as well. So this is interesting that for the first time, they now have a subscription model available for any of their yeah. packages. So the one I'm I'll quote some pricing on here is for Web Design Premium because that's the package that applies most to my company's um, development. Uh, but for Web Design Premium, you can purchase it for $89 a month with a one-year commitment, and then you get you know upgrades continuously if they have anything upgraded, and, and you know you're paying as you go. Or interestingly, you can do it for $135 a month with no commitment, and they will allow you to turn that on and off at will. And you can turn it off for up to six months and then turn it back on. So if for some reason you know it, these were tools that you really needed but only needed for a couple of months, you could subscribe for the month by month for two months and then turn it off. So your app stops working at that point, or? right? Right. Really. Right. Hmm. But so it, it's an interesting idea. And comparing with the full price, if you're buying a web design premium from scratch without an upgrade, it's a seventeen ninety nine for the full license. And if you had CS4, you can upgrade for six forty nine. So you know at that point, the upgrade price is cheaper than two years of subscribing, even right. one year to subscribing to this. Um, so, but you know, if you don't have it yet, it could be a good fit. You know, if you don't have eighteen hundred bucks and you want it, you can get it yeah. for eighty nine bucks a month. Hmm. So interesting.
0: Yeah, I'm in, I'm curious to hear if I mean they're not going to share this probably, but the the business model behind that because I mean. It, it's it's I can see it'd be great if you're starting out maybe mm-hmm. and you need something. Yeah, I don't know you're out of college or who knows what, but um, I don't know. I can't see anybody wanting to pay that ongoing. Yeah, that's the tricky piece. Huh. It's interesting, but so. that is cool that there's more mobile support for development mm-hmm. because I I know that the more good tools that there are for development, the more the is the more good stuff's going to come out. I mean that's Definitely. one reason that. Apple had did so well with iOS App Store is that the tools are so good right I mean I am not a programmer by any stretch of the imagination and I I signed up with the the uh, Apple Developer Network and mm-hmm. downloaded the Xcode and all that stuff Oh cool you know built a little do nothing app <laughs> really uh-huh. but it was pretty easy you to drag and drop stuff and nice. you know it it's pr- it's pretty nice so it's good that add uh, that Adobe's you know no notices that you know obviously it's kind of hard to miss that uh mobiles a pretty big deal but
1: yeah definitely so anyway
0: i would be i am curious to
1: see if we ever see pricing or uh, you know market stats as far as how many subscribers they get to the the subscription yeah. model
0: yeah i hmm.
1: guess we'll find out if it goes away that it didn't work huh? <laughs> <laughs> yeah <laughs> it's usually a pretty good guess
0: well uh the last thing i had today is uh, there are big some big changes to the google apps for business accounts and i noticed this because i have about 8 or 9 different Google Apps for Business yeah, Accounts. Same here. And if you don't, if you're not uh, uh familiar with what that means, um, I think they started out using Gmail essentially. So you could take your your website, you know, like Einstein and SockMonkey.com, and you could map the mail servers to Gmail's mail servers. So you actually receive your email through the Gmail interface. And I when I was doing client work um, for Building websites and stuff, I recommended this to everybody because Gmail has the best uh, spam filtering and they do. so forth, and that better than anybody else. And it's just easy and you can still that's use it. reliable. Your, your very, very few problems. And you got a massive amount of backup space and, and et cetera, et cetera. So that's what the Google Apps for Business accounts was. And then they slowly added in documents and a shared calendar across the organization. And, uh, so what they're doing now is they're changing it so you can only have a maximum of 10 users for free, for free. And then if you want to have more than that, it's $50 per user per year. Right. And, but that only applies to new accounts. So if you have an account with a lot more, I think the basic, like when I signed up for my website, there was, um, I think 50 people, I could have 50 users on my account for free. Sounds right. Um, so if if you signed up earlier, you're grandfathered in with that uh, that plan. But if you have anybody new or a, a new account or whatever, that's just the new deal. But what that's what this also does is it will give a, you a you, uh, the ability to sign in from any Google sign in page with your Google Apps for Business account, which for me is a big deal because I have Steve at clevercube.com. As a Google Apps for Business account, but then okay. I wanted to have like Google Reader account, which wasn't part of business. Right. So I had to sign up with a separate Google. Yep, I have the same ag- thing. So I have separate CleverQute as a separate Google account, and they're not tied together. And sometimes they, I can't remember which one I signed in with, where, blah blah so, blah. So
1: I, I noticed your note on this, and I haven't tried this yet. Um, but how does that work? Because like I do have exactly what you said. I have a Google Reader account through a different Google login. Than my Google Apps login. So how how have they tied those together? I don't, have you I don't tried know it if okay. they're going
0: to be uh, merged somehow or what. Maybe even I haven't tried it yet. Okay, um, because they're they're phasing this in gradually. Right. You, you can go into your you dashboard can voluntarily and yeah, switch over. You can switch over new. now if you want to. Okay. Or if you just wait or wait around, Google will do it for you in a couple months. But um. So it's a it's a good question. I don't know. I I could imagine them doing something like, "Do you want to sync the information or whatever?" No idea. But um, so the, in addition, there's a bunch of more features as well that you're going to be able to use as a business account owner. What that allows you to do is share a lot of this stuff between in a business. Like, P- Picasa is now okay. part of this, right? So you can have like a business. Uh, Photo, photo album, album
1: right? Yeah. And is great by the way. We I've used that this summer. We had a or this summer. Two months ago we hiked the Grand Canyon and then there was a group of us, nine of us, and we all wanted to upload our photos to one place. Right. And Picasso turned out to be a great interface for that. Because like we upgraded, I think you get one gigabyte of storage for free, but you can upgrade to twenty gigs for just five bucks a year. Wow. And that was enough for all of us to put all of our photos in one place.
0: That's nice. Yeah.
1: So that was a, a great tool. And they have nice slideshow features you can uh, create a, a link that you can just email to people and then even you know they don't have access to the account but they can view the slideshow. It's pretty nice.
0: Well we'll have we'll have a link in the show notes as far as um what's changing, but you can easily enough just Google Google Google. <laughs> well, <that laughs> I create t- a wormhole or I just put in Google Apps for Business Changes and it you get several uh knowledge-based answers from them. Cool. So well, I need I to check that out month. in more detail because we use that for all of our services and uh, we're on the
1: free account, which is wonderful. I do know that when you do pay the 50 bucks a year per user, you do get a lot more storage in your Gmail yes, yes. inboxes and you also get a much higher reliability guarantee as far really? as the yeah, service level agreement. Hmm. The SLA is much higher than the free accounts. And we have had one or two glitches over the last three or four years on the free account. Oh, really? Yep. Yeah, we had... Yep. A couple years ago we were actually down for an entire twenty-four hours with no Gmail. But that, oh, that was hurts. a couple years ago. It did hurt because we're all web based, you know. Yeah. Um, but it hasn't happened since and we're still in a free account, so that wasn't compelling enough for me to upgrade. Yeah. But ten users seems pretty fair for free. And yeah. Fifty dollars a year per user for all that you get is oh. nice. What would be nice is if they let you have some users for free and only charged you for the extras past ten, but
0: they don't do yeah, that, of course. I, I'm kinda of on my own little personal campaign to get our company to switch over everything to Google with one hundred and (laughs) fifty thousand employees. I don't know about that's pretty big. Bill, (laughs) (laughs) well, we're the division of our company right now. With the exchange server, which a lot of people do, but the overall corporate uses get this Lotus Notes. Wow, believe it or not, I didn't even realize that still existed. Yeah, so we're pretty certain that we don't have to switch to Lotus Notes, but just that threat (laughs) (laughs) makes everybody in the office a little bit nervous. I can imagine. You know, you could get rid of a lot of, honestly, you could get rid of a lot of staff and servers and equipment and et cetera if you did that. Anyway, so. that's the news for today, and um, we have a great feature today. Ron is going to be talking to us about web font services, so take it away, Ron.
1: You bet. So um, as a web developer, web fonts are of high interest to me and a web designer. Um, So I want to talk about that a little bit. I gave a presentation recently for one of our local meetups about web font services. So um, some of this information comes from that talk. But so to kind of lay the groundwork of what we're talking about here, you know, we've been using the same roughly 15 web safe fonts for the last, you know, since the last millennium. Uh Which is frustrating in some ways, you know, so when you look at it 's eleven years ago, <laughs> it is, <laughs> but that's a long time, I mean basically, yeah. for the entire history of the web, essentially we've been using the same thirteen or fifteen fonts, depending on how you count them and the reason being that um fonts on a website are drawn the font files themselves are drawn from the user's computer that's viewing the website, so Given that there are both Macs and PCs out there, if you want to render, specify a font that you are highly confident will be on every user's computer, you have to pick a font that is on both Macs and PCs. And that intersection of all those fonts is very small. It's about 15 fonts. Uh, so we're all familiar with those, Times New Roman, Verdana, and so on. Comic Sans. Uh, don't say that word. My <laughs> presence, please. <laughs> <laughs> if you say papyrus, I'll start screaming. <laughs> well, that's not one of the web-safe fonts, although no, Comic Sans no, is. Um, so that's been where we have been. But now with Web Font Services, we have the ability to bypass that and actually... Uh, take the font file and associate it with your website so that when someone visits your website their browser will download the font file for you and then display the font regardless of what machine they're on because they now have the font right um
0: now the font doesn't it's not like installed on their computer no
1: it's not installed on their computer so they won't be able to use it for like you know microsoft word or any other applications on their machine it's only rendering when they see your website right um but in the past one of the huge hurdles was the legal issues Uh, because fonts have licenses, you know, a font foundry spends an enormous amount of time creating excellent fonts. Yeah. Uh, many fonts are designed specifically for web. So, you know, that's a real, that is not something simple to do and there are licenses with those. So as a designer, when you buy Adobe CS 5.5, you know, the fonts that come with that, uh, or with your operating system, they have a license with them and they're generally not for distribution via websites, um, So this is one of the great things that the web font service companies have done is they've worked out the licensing agreements with specific foundries so that they can make the fonts available through the web. So that's one of the big hurdles. Um, The other big hurdle is just the um, cross-browser compatibility. Uh, Font embedding actually has been around for quite a while. Really? Yep. In fact, uh, since 1977, if you can believe it. 77? Uh, how about 1997? <laughs> <laughs> that sounds a little bit more like it. Oh, I swear, 1977. <laughs> Before the, di- the web was even invented. The disco fonts came first, the web yeah. came second. <laughs> okay, 1997. And you, I'll, I'll ask you, Steve, you want to make a guess as to which browser was the
0: first to support embedded web fonts? Well, in 97, uh, Netscape. No, no. In, in an Explorer. It right? was, yeah. IE4 was I didn't the first. I guess that one. I know.
1: Uh, but font embedding has been around since um, Internet Explorer 4.0. So they were the pioneers to make it work. Um, but there's been a lot of inconsistency and in, you know, in very slow adoption in the other browsers for font embedding. So it hasn't been available in the other browsers until recently. And how you do it has been inconsistent. So this is, again, what the web font services have done is, is smoothed out those inconsistencies so that we now have a convergent solution Uh, And that solution also is in large part because of CSS3. So that was kind of the final piece that dropped into place to make all this work. So within CSS3, uh, there's a tag called the at font-face uh, tag. And using that, um, we can actually then define these fonts that will work across browser. So I'll talk in a little more detail about how that works because it's it's interesting and not too complicated. Uh, So as far as browser support, using these font services now, uh, it works in everything in IE since IE4, so no worries there. Firefox since 3.5, Chrome since 4.0, and we're up to what, well, like 10 now or something, right? In Chrome version 10, mm, I think. I
0: don't, I've not paid attention. I think it is. Uh, Safari since version
1: 3.1. I think we're up to version 5 in Safari. Uh, Safari Mobile, everything from iOS iOS 4.2 and up is supported. Uh, and the CSS3 font face. Opera since Opera 10, and I think we're at 11 now. And Opera Mobile since 9.7. All that's to say that basically any modern browser, and even IE's going back past IE6, will support. Yeah, because I knew when, when
0: this first people first started talking about this, it was a little bit a little sketchy, just because you know you don't know what the person's browser is going to be, and you have to have a fallback, but. If, exactly, and you know, everybody's using it. It's And kinda... you
1: still do have to have some fallbacks, but the techniques now for implementing that within this font-face CSS3 command are much better than anything oh, has been. So sure. so it's not hard to do and the font the web font services, if you're uh take care of that for you actually. So if you're hand coding, you need to know the fallback techniques, but they're not that complicated and if you're using a web font service, they do it. Okay. So they take care of the licensing And the general technique is, uh, in some cases, you actually get the font from the web font service, you upload that font to your web server, you add a little bit of CSS, and you're done. And then you can display the fonts that they have made available to you or that you've purchased from them uh, on your site. And the the basic syntax of the font face uh, instruction is pretty simple. There's really just two components. One is the font-family um, selector, which you then specify the name of the font and then the source uh, that you get to specify the actual file and the path to that font file okay. and that's about it and then you can use that font anywhere within your uh, within your website using regular CSS, you would have a font stack, which is what we call the series of font names or typeface names that follow the font family tag. So like within a paragraph tag, you want to style that in a certain font. You're going to do font family colon and then several font names, right? So that if the first one doesn't load, it'll fall back to the second one and so on. So they call that the font stack. So you just specify that as the first or one of the fonts in the font stack and it will
0: it will work. So with this example, when you're just actually putting the, this font on your own server, mm-hmm. you could theoretically, not legally theoretically <laughs> you could grab any font from your computer and stick it up on your server it has to be in specific formats okay
1: so maybe
0: okay yeah. like true type font works
1: yeah right? true type font works but so here's here's the trick though so that won't work in all browsers oh right so different browsers actually need different versions of font files and there are basically four primary font file types i won't go into the detail on them but the four are EOT, which is Embedded OpenType, uh, which is I, IE needs that. Um, okay. WOFF, which is stands for Web-Only Font Format, and um, that's needed for IE9, Firefox 3.6 and above, and Chrome 5 and above. And then there's TrueType fonts, and SVG is actually required for some of the iOS stuff before iOS wow, uh, 42 I've, I've heard
0: of TrueType, and I've heard, not even heard of the other ones. <laughs> yeah, exactly.
1: So the cool thing is, if you go through... Uh, Say, for example, Font Squirrel. We'll talk about some of the different font services here in a moment. But Font Squirrel is one that provides fonts for free. So they've worked with foundries that will provide them with royalty-free licenses. Um, And for those, you actually do download the font. What they do is they provide it to you in all these formats in a little package. And then you upload all of those to your web server. And then their CSS is... uh, you use their CSS file or just copy theirs and put it into your CSS file. And it has the proper fallback sequence so that depending on the browser, the browser will automatically choose the proper okay. font. And it's all in CSS. So there's nothing in HTML, no conditional comments, no JavaScript. No JavaScript is required for most of them, except a few do, but most don't require any JavaScript. Okay. Right. So. Anyway, that's the nasty uh, cross-browser. It's not that nasty, but I'm just showing the cross-browser syntax. But we're not going to go through that because that's describing (laughs) that in text and in words is uh, URL,
0: uh, parentheses, apostrophe. Yeah, go ahead.
1: Not worth it. So, uh, so as far as web font services and providers, um, we'll provide a link to uh, a a series of them. There is more than a dozen out there now. So quite a few which is amazing. And we'll talk about four very briefly here just to give a range because there's different techniques for each. But a couple of them are fully free. So Font Squirrel and Google Web Fonts are all free. And then the others are not necessarily that expensive. So like Typekit, we'll talk about, they start out at I think 24.99 per year, which is not bad, and that will cover five fonts for two websites. Um, but, you know, given the cost of the what developing an entire website, an extra $25 a year is not that much if no. you want to. Use, and that would cover all your fonts for any one site, basically. Cool. If you're using more than five fonts on a website, you have, you a have problem. problems. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah exactly. um, So let's go through these uh, the techniques because they're a little bit different for each. So Font Scroll has about 650 font families available. And just go to fontscroll.com. <clears throat> and you can browse through their their fonts and what you do is click on their button that says the at font face kit and the kit includes all the the font and all those formats i mentioned and the css that you need so all you do is copy that folder that you downloaded to your website uh to your web server uh and the html you do need to add one link to the style sheet that they provided or you can edit their style sheet just copy that stuff and put it in your own style sheet yeah that's fine enough. And and then add the appropriate font family to the tags that you want to use the new font in. And it's, it's really that simple.
0: Wow, that's cool.
1: Yeah, and they've got, uh, you know, again, 650 fonts or something available. Is that what I said? Yeah, 650. Yeah, so that's pretty good. Um, so the Google Font API is the next one. And they've got fewer fonts, uh, but this is even easier to do. So uh, on Google Web Fonts, you just browse the fonts you want. And when you when you see the one one that you like, there are there's tab navigation. You click on the tab that says use this font, and there is literally a single link that you copy from the web page right off the page and embed that in your head of your HTML document. And what that does is it links directly to the Google servers. So in this case, you're not uploading the web font to your server; it's going to be served from the Google servers. Ah. But that's cool because if that font is popular, people might have already stumbled across that font on another website and have it cached from that source. And so that even saves on download time and performance on your site. So there is an advantage to that. Plus, the other advantage of fonts that are hosted on the web font providers' servers is that these fonts actually do get improved for web use from time to time. So they will update them, and then your site is always using the most
0: updated version of the font. Cool. And then Google just added some web fonts to there.
1: Yeah, I, I've I've been checking periodically over the last few months, and they pretty regularly add fonts to that. So again, they're getting royalty-free fonts, so there's no charge for their service, and they do add more all the time. Uh, when I last checked, it was just a couple of hundred, but they do keep adding, and so that, that should keep growing. Uh, let's talk about Typekit for a minute. So Typekit is um, one of the paid services, but these guys have really thought things through And their service works very well. Um, The fonts are hosted on their service, just like the Google one. Sign up is really quick uh, for an account. And you um, you can try them out for free. So you can actually test them out and make sure it's really what you want to do before you're paying for it. So that's really nice. The one different thing about Typekit is that you copy a JavaScript link into your HTML head. So you're not just linking to a CSS and a font file. You're actually linking to some JavaScript. You might say, you know, "Well, do I really want to do that?" Right? Because not everybody has JavaScript turned on in their browser. So most people do these days, though. I haven't seen yeah. stats lately, but it's in the if definitely in the nineties. If you don't have
0: JavaScript turned on, you're dead to me.
1: <laughs> I love it. <laughs> it's true. I mean, so many func- so much functionality now depends on JavaScript oh, yeah. that um, yeah. you know you just can't do a lot without it. But that is the one limitation to Typekit. Um, The reason they do that, though, is that they've been at this a long time, and that was early on how they got some cross-browser compatibility was through some JavaScript tricks. That's not really necessary anymore. The fonts take care of that for you. But there are some neat features that there are... um, I need to look at my notes real quick for the the benefits of this. Um, So the font events, yes, allow you to control FOUT, flashes of unstyled text. Yes. So one of the issues with any of these services is that uh, until the font has downloaded from the web server to your user's computer, they're either going to be served a fallback font, or and then and then you'll have a flat, you know, quick blink as the new font is rendered. So the font will change from the default to the one you want, um, or it will show no text until the font is downloaded, and then boom, your your text magically appears.
0: Yeah, that was a big problem when people would use things like QFont and, and and some other, of the older fallback yeah, techniques that, that replaced it with Flash, because it would be a really bad jump and a bad bl- blink, and flash, whatever.
1: Exactly. So, uh, and that's browser dependent, by the way. Whether it shows a fallback font till the font's downloaded, oh, really? or if it shows nothing till the font's downloaded. So, with the JavaScript that comes with Typekit, you can control that experience so it's consistent across all browsers. Okay. So you can either have it one way or the other. It's your choice. And then it also allows other things. There's some JavaScript callbacks built in that let you do fancy things like fade in a block of text after the font is downloaded
0: so that it's not a harsh experience. Really? Yeah, so it's pretty neat. I didn't know about that because I use Typekit for, like I, I think I have five websites using Typekit. Einstein and Sockmonkey is one of there them. There you go. Um, yeah, I didn't know about the, some of the neat the little... Cool things like that.
1: Yeah. So, and uh, if you just do a search on their blog, and we'll have links to it as well, but they've got uh, good documentation on how to do all that. And it's not very hard um, to do those things. And they do it on their own site. They do some font fade in. Um, if you're on a fast connection, of course, you'll probably never see that just because right. the font downloads so fast. These font files are typically like in the 30K ish range. That's They're not that big. They yeah. come down pretty quickly. So, anyway, uh, that's TypeKit and um, pretty straightforward. And then the last one I'll mention is Web Inc. Uh, and the reason I'm mentioning them is it's very much like Typekit in that they host the fonts. You have to pay for them, mm-hmm. um, and typically for Webink, realistically you're going to be about $2 a month and up. Their pricing, unfortunately, is just slightly confusing in that it does depend on the bandwidth of the fonts they served through your site. Really? So if you're somebody like the New York Times that has you know millions of hits, it's going to be more than 2 bucks a month. You know, for most sites that are getting, you know, a thousand visitors a month, a couple thousand visitors, even 10,000 visitors a month, you're probably not going to push the bandwidth button at all. Um, But if you have a lot of traffic, yeah, you could start hitting the bandwidth limits and then they'll charge you a little bit more. They have a calculator thing that lets you calculate it out what it's going to be. So it's unfortunate for them that they made the tool complex because otherwise their service is good. Uh, And so it can be typically 24 bucks a year also for most normal websites that aren't super high traffic um but again the reason I point them out is that's like typekit except no javascript so mm. it works even if people don't have javascript
0: okay you have not heard of that before and and it it's always frustrating when like you said when people make it hard for you to give them money
1: yeah <laughs> exactly confusing.
0: it's like rule number 1 in business don't make it hard for me to give you money
1: yeah exactly make it as easy as possible so that's the quick overview of um of web font services uh, again, we'll post some links, and there are there are lots of really good resources. And there's two or three kind of like really key links that would give you some nice overviews of the services and um, comprehensive information. So yeah. we'll post links to that. And uh, uh, it's a brave new world. So I mean, the, the big advantages are as a designer, you have a lot a lot more. You, you know, you can make a site very unique now because right. you can use some unique heading fonts. You could even use some nice content fonts. The I think the biggest downside is
0: going to be clients. I had that problem. <laughs> <laughs> Did you run into that? Well, I, uh, you know, in in my previous life of doing websites for people, I had set up a, a company here in town. I set up a, their site using Typekit. Uh-huh. And I, you know, charged them for a year of that. Um, but then I went into working at a, at a corporation. Right. And this is still running in the background. Right. And then... Typekit emails me and says, hey, it's time to renew. And I'm like, oh, crap. <laughs> I don't want to do What do I do? Because I don't have <laughs> to to like, invoice them for another year, and i do not even doing business really anymore. But luckily, I went over to their site, and they had just had their website redesigned by, oh, somebody by else. another company in town. So cool. Fuck <laughs> you. <laughs> so I just deleted their uh, their kit from Typekit. Oh, okay. So I don't have to worry about it. But yeah, it can be a problem if you have a bunch of clients on it, mm-hmm. and then... you. The one option is to have sign them have each client sign up their own account. Right? Yeah,
1: that's probably the ideal way. So if they do switch providers, you know it's on them, right? So their credit card right. is getting rebuilt, and if they switch web designers or developers, it's not a problem for them. I think that's probably yeah. the best way to handle it.
0: It's it's so when it, whenever you get into things like that, it's always difficult to sometimes sometimes not always I should say difficult to talk the client through and signing up for a service and you've got to get the code from them. And if they need to change, you know, can I have your password? But yeah, it's all whole- Yeah,
1: typically, you know, if if we have a good relationship with the client, if they're willing to share their credit card number with us, we'll often set it up for them, uh-huh. you know, so that since it's fast that's for us because nice. we do it all the time and then, you know, then they can log in and change the password and, and then they have full control. If they choose to do that, usually they just let us manage it for them. Um, so that's one way to handle it. So while we're on the topic of fonts, though, I, I do have to share. So I just got back from a trip to California, my last trip for a little while, and we were staying at the I was staying at the Crown Plaza Hotel in Concord, and and this is a, a national chain. It's a pretty decent hotel system, yeah. and their designer for their posters and their menu is clearly somebody in house who knows just enough to be horrible. <laughs>
0: oh no! Oh my <laughs> oh, no. gosh!
1: I actually had to take photos of their posters and their room service menu so their posters in the elevator are you know advertising the food for the restaurant Uh one of them had four fonts and the other poster had five fonts and it's like you're kidding do we really need five fonts to get your message separate fonts yep five separate typefaces And then their menu is just atrocious, and we've all seen it, right? It's got the background images behind the text, so that makes the text hard to read. Yeah. And every single phrase on this menu, cover, page, back cover, was centered. Every single <laughs> phrase, uh, and you could tell they're trying to be hip because, like, for the prices, instead of like dollar sign eleven ninety five, like, it's eleven, 8-11. but not just eleven; it's like eleven with a tilde after it. So they're trying to look like hip, <laughs> and it's just oh, it was eye rolling good. It was just awful. Awesome.
0: <laughs> yeah, I. It's, uh. Yeah, uh, I don't need to say anything more about that. In general, though, I am glad that folks are getting the idea of the web font thing because. You know, typography can be really, uh, like you just said, I mean, it can make or break your impression of a company or a service or whatever. You can do some wonderful, unique
1: things, right? and Make something really stand out as incredibly awesome. Yes. Or you can wreck it and make it look totally awful. Right, which
0: is usually easier. (laughs)
1: Yes, so so that's the double-edged sword of web font services is that if your clients start browsing through these, Web fonts, you know, they might want to use a certain font and then we have the added task of educating them why they should let your designer pick the font and why these fonts go together and theirs
0: don't and so on. Do you guys at Code Geek have a preferred method of doing this or kind of Uh, whatever works best?
1: our method is that our designers create the site and we just get approval from the client we don't tell them that there are choices of the fonts right. <laughs> so so far it hasn't come up where you know they had enough knowledge to actually find that web font service and start scrolling through what's okay. available um, that so, could be dangerous yeah so we've tr- <laughs> we've tried to avoid it through you know here's our recommendation well, it's part of the design. Yeah, exactly. It's part of the design, and, and so far we haven't had any complaints. So.
0: so, do you? I mean, do you use like Font Squirrel? Oh, type kit? gotcha.
1: Uh, we played with uh, Font Squirrel and Typekit. Uh, those are the two that we've used yeah. so far. Yeah.
0: Cool. Neat. Well, thanks a lot for that, Ron. I think it's gonna, that's going to be a lot of help for a lot of folks. You are welcome. Well, a word about our. Uh, sponsor, our podcast sponsor is uh Audible, continues to be for Einstein and Sock Monkey. And they're offering a free audiobook download with a free 14-day trial to give everybody a chance to check things out and uh, see if it's something you like. And I warn you it will be something that you like. And um our uh, the new URL to kind of give us credit for sending you their way is audibletrial.com slash Einstein. And um My audio book pick for this episode is a book I listened to a little while ago, and I just keep coming back to it in my brain. And it has really, in a lot of ways, not to sound too uh, dramatic, but it's really changed my life in a lot of ways. Wow, that's dramatic. (laughs) (laughs) Maybe sort of, kind of. Is that better? Sure. Um, (laughs) It's called Mindset, The New Psychology of Success, Hmm. and it's written by Carol Dweck, D-W-E-C-K. And she has, she's a cognitive psychologist, I think, or something along those lines, but she's actually a researcher and she's done tons of research on people's mindsets and how Mm -hmm. that influences their life and their success. Okay. And there's basically two mindsets. There's a growth mindset and there's a fixed mindset. And she kind of gives you a test at the beginning to see which one you are. And You know, people are usually not all one or all the other, but a, a like one of the questions in the test is, um, true or false, a person is as intelligent as they are going to be for the rest of their life. Interesting. So things like that. So the the idea is a, a fixed mindset says, I have this level of talent, whatever I do with that talent is my choice. But that's how much that's I, was been,
1: I was born with. There's no more you can't improve right. that.
0: Right, I can Increase maybe tweak that. that or or whatever. But this you can't I, substantially move. Beyond yeah, that. I have mm. X amount of talent or <laughs> smarts or ability. Just
1: say no to limiting beliefs. Yeah, and so <laughs> and
0: but a, a growth mindset is you can always learn more, you can always be smarter because a lot of times we think I can learn more. i no- I gonna get more knowledge and more book smarts, but. Right. I'm as in, I'm as smart. My IQ stays the same, right? Okay, which is not true. Hmm. And so a lot of people really feel like that. You know, I'm am, I'm am how I am, and I can't really change that, right? But the people who end up being successful in their lives, whatever that means, whatever success means to you, that is really determined by your mindset. Are do you think that you can improve and change? And it helped us, me and my wife, a lot with our parenting, to be honest, ah. because our daughter you know at the risk of sounding like a you know doting father she's very smart okay <laughs> at the risk of sounding I like a fixed she mindset <laughs> she's really she's really quick she she was very you know developed early you know her her uh language skills and so forth she was reading at 3 and so forth and so we had kind of fallen into this trap of saying oh you're so smart and so forth and we realized that after reading this book i realized It's really putting her in this really bad position because if you think I am smart, then you fail. It's a huge deal because I I am I I am able to do it because you're smart. Yeah, I am a failure. Not I made a mistake. But if you're in the growth mindset, you say, "Oh, I made a mistake. I'll do better next time." Right. I can learn from that and improve. Right. So Mm. you know we've been changing the way we say things to her, and Mm -hmm. the way I'm thinking myself as far as I can improve this. I don't I don't care if I'm not good at it today. There's always tomorrow I can get better at it, I mean so very cool it's a great and it's very well read it's it's a it's a great book uh, once again it's mindset and uh I really recommend anybody to huh. listen to that and it's not exactly web design centric but yeah, but all just yeah it know, all
1: fits in it all yeah it combines together, and
0: and the kind of stuff we're talking about is you know you have to learn something new every day mm-hmm. <laughs> and if you think that you're just stuck where you are, then definitely so. well, and
1: I think we've seen it you know. And friends and in, um, you know, businesses that we work with, with clients, right. You know, people have a particular approach to something, a particular mindset. So that sounds like a very intriguing yeah. book to me. I would be interested to read it. That's great. I'm always interested in psychology and, you know, how things work and how people, how people work. work. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so cool suggestion. I look forward to checking that out.
0: Yeah. So again, that's, uh, audible trial.com slash Einstein and you can get your own free audiobook just for signing up. Reminder, once again, about our book club book, Undercover User Experience Design. And we have a definite time for the interview with Kenneth Bowles. So Yay. that will we're going to be interviewing him next week. Um, we will have that on our next episode of our podcast. So podcast number 10, we'll have him. And uh, if you haven't read the book yet, go to undercoverux.com and you can get either a Kindle version, print version, whatever. And read that before; it'll uh, kind of give you some background before we talk to Kenneth. And I also talked, and he, I also found out he is leaving Clear Left. Oh my gosh! Um, to go on his own, so wow. I wanted to kind of get a little bit yeah. insight from him I can about ask him why about that. and because, uh, you know, Clear Left for for a UX, UX designer, they're kind of like like up on the Golden Hill, you know? <laughs> <laughs> right? Everybody, so why is he leaving? Exactly, why yeah. is he leaving? Um, What's he looking forward to? Ooh, and he, you know, exciting. he doesn't have any. I read, you can, on his blog, he mentioned he's leaving, you know, no hard feelings or anything. It's just moving on to something different. So, you know, I'm curious to find out what his plans are and why he wants to do that. And because I know I, every people who listen to our podcast are from very different, you know, every everybody's starting at a different place. Right. So it's, I, we always try to bring things to everybody to, for, to understand ways to approach things from different directions. So, yeah, I'm looking forward to the interview. Thanks yeah. for getting that set up. Sure. That should be good. Okay, hey, let's head on to our blog picks
1: for the week. So my blog pick uh, this week is Information Architects, And um, maybe some of you have heard of them, but they're based in Japan, and uh, their logo is just IA. And they are creators of the Awesome Web Trend map. Uh, I don't know if you've run into this, but we have one on our wall here from oh, a couple that was years in ago. Wall. Okay. Yeah, it's a poster right outside the conference room here. So for several years, they've done this web trend map where they've mapped out um, what they consider the top several hundred influential websites on the web and their relationships to each other. And uh, it's really a nice, really nice example of information architecture. And then they've also developed an iPad application called Writer, um, just like it sounds, with a W writer, and I, I use that. I like it a lot for uh, text editing. That's what I use as my main text editor on the iPad. And anyway, they—I've uh, been following and been a fan of theirs for several years. And they don't blog frequently, but they do have a few posts on there. And right now, in particular, you know they've been uh, very affected by the earthquake. Oh, right. They're based in Tokyo primarily, but um, uh, they have been affected by that. And they have blogged somewhat about that. So if you're interested for some firsthand, you know, uh, accounts of people in our industry who are in Japan and, and going through this, um, I definitely recommend uh, checking out those blog posts. And they also have a very active Twitter stream and a number of people within their company, uh, do use Twitter and they've got links to all those accounts as well. So, um, Definitely check them out and uh, support them. Check out Writer their iPad app and check out their web trend maps. Very cool, and they've got other a few other products as well. But um, I just I really like their style uh, on the whole. So. Well,
0: and what's the website again?
1: Uh, it's informationarchitects.jp because cool. they're in Japan. Uh, but if you just do a web search for information architects, uh, it'll come up pretty high.
0: Okay, cool. Well, <clears throat> I have one not web related, but. Um I love this blog because uh, every few days the guy puts out something that really it's kind of designy, and really it's just it's it's art. It's really neat. It's, uh, it's the website is if we don't remember me, and it's iwdrm.tumblr.com. And what he, what the guy does is he he takes scenes from like classic films like The Godfather, Psycho, etc., mm-hmm. and he grabs like two seconds out of it and makes this seem like the best, most seamless animated gif of that scene that you've oh, ever really? seen. And sometimes it's a little bit creepy because you like watch something and every once in a while, someone's eyes will blink <laughs> and or whatever. And my favorite one, and have you clicked on this link yet? No, you should. Okay. okay I'll Click on the right link. Now. It's of, um, the, and what he does is he put a, he puts a quote underneath of, uh, from that, that piece in the movie, gotcha. And, <laughs> uh, and the, what 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 Ron is watching for you folks listening at home, um, it's a clip, It's a scene out of the the movie Psycho, and the the main character. What's the guy's name? Yeah, I've I, seen I, it, but I don't recall the screen. name of his. <laughs> i Unfortunately, anyway, the creepy guy. Yeah, the creepy um, guy. He's he's just sitting there, kind of looking down, and you watch this GIF for the longest time. And he just kind of looks up and has this creepy smile on his face. Wow! But if if you look through these, um, it's just so well done. I cannot see the the because I know he's looping something somewhere, right. and I cannot find the loop in it at all. He's just done such a good job. I've seen other blogs that do this kind of similar thing, um, but it's it's not anywhere as perfect as this. So.
1: Awesome. Anyway, that's I, a neat, I a really, neat art form.
0: It, yeah, and it it really is art because it it really kind of evokes something that the scene in the movie doesn't by itself. Right. So anyway, Very so that's nice. if we don't remember me, and that's a that's a line from. Uh, oh, I, I looked up the movie. It's a line from a movie. It's another classic, but uh, anyway. So it's a lot, it's a lot of fun. It's a it's good to kind of get you thinking in a different way. A
1: Okay, so to close out our podcast, um, let's see just uh, one announcement that I wanted to make, which is I'm giving a talk on mobile and web and uh, kind of a bunch of stats uh, going on relative to that and techniques for approaches to mobile strategy for your business. Um, I'm actually doing it three times this month. They're all slightly different talks. Oh. But uh local meetup here in Fort Collins, uh, Wednesday, May 11th at 6 p.m. I'll be talking with the Web Magic Marketers Meetup. Uh, you can find them on the meetup site. We'll provide links to these. And then on May 17th, I am giving a webinar through... Broads on dot com, which is my friend. Here.
0: Yeah. <laughs> did did I a, hear you right? Broads on Business. <laughs> that is the name
1: of it. That's uh our friend Adrian awesome. Zobel. She is an awesome marketing uh consultant here in Fort Collins. So she has a really great membership site on marketing tips and techniques for small and medium-sized businesses. And she does uh webinars periodically. So I'll be speaking uh mobile is the new Godzilla is the title nice. of my my talk. <laughs> Again, that'll be um May 17th at 8 in the morning mountain time. So, um, But you can listen to that, of course, anywhere. Uh, Check out her website and sign up to uh, to join.
0: Will that be recorded for later, do you know?
1: I think so, but probably only for members of her site. So um, it's a membership site for that marketing advice. Cool. And then lastly, I am speaking at a, a conference in Keystone, Colorado on May 18th. And that is the Leading Age Colorado Conference. So this is a conference for companies all across Colorado. It's a national organization. Um, that provides services to the aging population, oh. uh, and I'll be giving a talk uh, on social media and also mobile and how you know those businesses, those uh, institutions and organizations can be using mobile to uh, reach reach their audience uh, nice. since mobile is on the rise. Yeah. So anyway, if you're available to uh, check any of those out, please do say hi. Uh, we want to give a big thanks to Josh Mulligan for doing the show notes uh, for our episodes. And wanna thank the Hive for the conference room space for us to record today.
0: And what is the Hive, Ron?
1: Uh the Hive is a shared office space that I am uh, one of the two runners of, co-owners of in yeah. downtown Fort Collins. So you can find us at Hive F C as in fivefortcollins.com.
0: Cool. And make sure to visit our website, Einstein and SockMonkey.com. You can, of course, leave comments and uh let's avoid the hate mail, but you can leave comments <laughs> and nice things to say. And um other than that, you can find me at what I write at clevercubed.com and at Twitter is also
1: at Clevercubed. And you can find me on Twitter at Ron underscore Z and on the web at codegeek.net.
0: And remember everybody to subscribe to the podcast on iTunes if you haven't already yet. And rate it the rate us there. We have um, we have enough ratings to have Five stars in, in iTunes. Let's Hooray. keep going with that. Thank you, listeners. And uh, the more listeners, the better. We've. Uh, I'm honestly still surprised with how many listeners we have acquired already. <laughs> Thank you, listeners. But, yeah, definitely. <laughs> Thank you so we much. We appreciate you very much. For listening and uh, tell everybody about us if you don't mind. So um, we'll see you guys next time and uh, have a good week. Einstein and Sock Monkey is sponsored by CodeGeek.net full-service web design and development agency, and clevercubes.com, providing user experience design, usability testing, and information architecture, and presented by Ron Zasadinski and Steve Martin. Music provided by the band Black Lab. Find them at blacklabworld.com.